This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey, everybody, this is Brain Matters. You're listening to this episode, and I am your host, Matt Davis. I'm your second host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey, buddy, how's it going? I'm doing great, brother. What's your what's your life been like recently? Do you have anything coming up? Yeah, actually, I'm going on a trip. Uh, I'm going to the Pavlovian Society Conference. It's going to be in Jersey City. So any Jersey fans out there, New York fans, you know what to do. Slide into the DM. Slide up into that Brain Matters DM. Do you want to set like a location for you people to meet you like like in a park or? Yeah, <laughs> 3 a.m. <laughs> Public restroom. Yeah. Oh, God. You got a you got a poster? I do have a yeah, I'm presenting my work. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll maybe I'll stop by. You're not coming. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I will be here at ACL that weekend. ACL, Austin City Limits. That's what it stands for. The music festival. Yes, it's not neuroscience related. Who are you ex- most excited about seeing? I got to say LCD sound system. Lots of fun things to look forward to that. I mean Kendrick and uh, Radiohead also. It's it's about the headliners at ACL for me. Oh, and Flying Lotus is playing. Definitely got to check him out. Okay, enough about what we're up to. Let's get to today's episode. Are you curious who the guest today was? Always. Always and forever. Are you curious as to the topic in which this person Always curious. Okay. Today's episode, we have Dr. Frank Pelot. He's a professor of neuroscience at Columbia. And he studies a lot of interesting things on the cell biological level. I sort of want to frame this story before we get into it. Going back to basic biology, you open your textbook, you're looking at a diagram of a cell, and what do you see? I see a gigantic spherical cell, and it's got a bunch of little tiny things in there. There's a nucleus, and there's mitochondria. Oh, mitochondria. You you hit gold there, because that's what we're talking about today. Certainly very important part of cells, if you've ever taken a biology class, they always say, this is the powerhouse of the cell. It provides energy to the cell. And depending on the cell's energy demands, whether it's a cell that uses a lot of energy uh, versus one that uses a little, there may be more or less mitochondria. And it turns out that cells that are really big, like neurons that cover a lot of distance, they need their energy in specific spots. Like if you have a dendrite way far away from the, the soma of the cell, you'd want an energy producing thing there. And so this process, it's static or it's It's regulated. Dynamic? It's, it's dynamic, yes. It's regulated by various factors. Um, Dr. Pelot studies uh, some of those, some of the things that move these mitochondria around to specific sites. It also turns out that they provide a very important function in terms of how calcium is handled at certain spots in neurons, specifically certain presynaptic sites in axons. Okay, so he's showing that the mitochondria do more than what your textbook might normally classify them. Yeah, they're more than meets the eye. They're more interesting than we might have thought. Indeed, yeah. Uh, so So we'll get into that. We also talk about a really fascinating part of his research where he looks at brain evolution and some of the genetic underpinnings of what drives maybe the differences between humans and other species. It turns out there's some gene duplication processes that happen that may have contributed to the way our brains look different than animals. Fascinating. Well, my mitochondria are ramping up right now. I can feel them surging to 
buffer calcium and to provide enough energy to contain my excitement for listening to this interview. And I certainly hope that that process is intensely happening in your cochlea. I, th I think my cochlea is the highest concentration right now. <laughs> Would you say it's in a perked state? Perked state? Perked state? There. <laughs> yes. At the state of perk? Hold on. Now it's perked. Let's go to the interview. I'd like to start off real simply, where did you grow up? Yes, I, I grew up in France in, uh, in a city called Lyon. Yes. I was born in the Alps, in the French Alps, but I, I came to Lyon when I was five and I uh, spent my entire life up until yeah the end of my PhD, basically. I, I did all um, my uh, studies up to college in, in Lyon. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, I, I had a good time there. Do you still go back frequently? Absolutely. Yeah, my family's still there. With my mom and dad, my my family is sort of dispersed all around France. There are people in Paris, there are people in Marseille, in the southwest. But but you know, my mom and dad and most of my friends are are in Lyon. So I go back, yeah, at least twice a year, I would say. Yeah, were your parents academics? Or? No, actually, I have absolutely no uh, track record on uh, academics or scientists in in my family. Yeah, the closest. That I can think about is my, I have an aunt, my mom's sister, who's, uh, who's a writer, uh, but she studies, you know, theater, uh, sculpture. She's, you know, but, um, but yeah, no, not a yeah. single scientist in my family. Can um, you sort of identify, uh, something that led to you or inspired you to become a scientist or pursue that academic path? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think it came, Maybe I can think about two influences. The first one is my grandfather on my, so it's my dad's uh, dad was sort of an, he was not a scientist, you know, but he was an avid science uh, lover. He, he had this collection, I remember, of these stacks of um, this publication called Science et Vie, Science and Life in French. It's sort of the French version of Scientific American. And I discovered this when I was, I don't know how old, probably six or seven, you know, in his attic. And I, I remember that day when I discovered these mountains of pies and I started looking at them and I, yeah, I became a really avid reader of this, uh, this publication. This, this did have a profound influence. Yeah. On me. And then more concretely, the, I would say my 10th grade teacher uh, in biology, was uh, really influential. Mm -hmm. She was just a great all-around teacher and sort of encouraged me to, to at least consider a career in science as a as a viable professional, you know, uh, avenue. And uh, and I I did. I it took me a while to to sort of find my path. I I actually started by going to med school in France. I, in fact, being influenced by this uh, this teacher, this biology teacher, whose I believe daughter went to med school, 
and apparently ended up doing some clinical research. She said, you know, if you go to med school, you can do both. You can you can decide, you know, if you want to. But but in France, there's there's no such such thing as MD PhD program. So if yeah, I mean, if you go to med school, you're you're destined to to essentially become a, a doctor. And so, yeah. and it didn't work out for me. I you know the selection process is is uh, at the end of the first year in in med school in France. They have this numerosclerosis. It's very very hard, tight selection, entirely based on one hundred percent memorization. And okay. Yeah. I, I, it wasn't for me, so yeah. so I decided to to switch, and and there was an equivalence. I, I could go to second year of college basically directly, and I took off from there. I, I discovered that's really what I wanted to do. And yeah, so, yeah. So I was very lucky in that sense, um, not to sort of insist and pursue, you know, a, a medical degree because it, it didn't make any sense. And yeah, and, and I loved uh, university uh, here. Mm-hmm. In your graduate work what were some of the questions that you asked and what were some of the research projects yeah 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 so um this was far back now we essentially asked very a very simple question which is is there a relationship or is there an influence for cell position in the the developing brain and cell type and cell subtype so Mm -hmm. in particular we were interested in testing if neurons would actually be instructed to project to specific locations in the brain depending on what layer they they ended up in because there's this clear correlation at least in the cortex the 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 layer you you end up in essentially correlates with you know where you project for example but it also correlates with other aspects of neuronal phenotype but there's a clear correlation between layer identity and projection and so we, we, we tested if there's a relationship between the two, right? Um, by uh, studying this very famous uh, mutant mouse, the realer mutant mm-hmm. mouse, uh, that disrupts migration in the cortex of pyramidal neurons and essentially completely uh, mixes up all the layers. There's no layer structure. Yeah. Uh, it's more than simply an inversion, actually. People claim that for years. It's a complete mixture. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there, supposedly, you have no positional information anymore. And so we, we asked, are neurons born on, on a given date uh, have the same probability to project to a given target? And, and the answer was yes. So, so essentially, it doesn't seem to be a, a very you know, major role for cell position, which sort of retrospectively makes sense now that we know that's cell identity specified in at the time when the cells are still neural stem cells they're still progenitors right Through yeah the action of combination of transcription factors all that so it, it it's pretty clear that at least projection subtype right is, is specified even before they get to the right layer right okay. that, that's the current notion yeah we didn't know that back in 92 when i started my PhD. <laughs> it, it wasn't really clear right? yeah and so so that that's one thing i did um, the realer mouse has a specific behavioral phenotype, right? Yeah, That's yeah, why it was named. They're really, uh, they have severe phenotypes. Most of the behavioral phenotypes are because of cere- so. So the same thing happens. The same thing that happens in the cortex, this yeah. defect in layering, happens in the cerebellum. The granule cells are all over the place. They're not, you know, tightly packed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mice are severely ataxic. Yeah. So they're very easy to genotype in a cage. In fact, this is how the mutation was isolated back in 1951 yeah. by this uh, guy Falconer. Um, he was working for uh, Jackson Labs, you know, at a time when Jackson Labs' uh, main enterprise was to 
develop, you know, essentially mouse genetics. Yeah. But, but they didn't have a way to manipulate the mouse genome. So they relied on spontaneous mutations occurring in, in large mouse colonies. Wow. Yeah. And so he, uh, Falconer and other did a fabulous job actually identify multiple mutant mouse, mice, uh, just simply based on their behavioral phenotype. And so mm-hmm. this, this mouse reeler, the, the name comes from the fact that they're real. Their, their back legs actually lag behind. They're severely ataxic. You know, if you, if you put them on a rod, basically they fall immediately. They, mm-hmm. they can't, you know. Uh, but this is thought to be mostly, um, you know, cerebellar dependent, uh, yeah. phenotype. The fact that the, and, and many structures are affected in, in those animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been this mutation and many other mutations are, became very famous because they were the first sort of, uh, direct link between genes and, and through development and circuit function. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, of course, it took many, many years to identify the genes that were mutated in those yeah. spontaneous um, uh, mutations. Rilan was uh, was identified uh, by Tom Kern back in, in fact, I think right when I started my my uh, my PhD work, uh, okay. this group Tom Kern, I think, uh, yeah, I, I identified the fact that the gene mutated yeah, is yeah. Rilan. He named it Rilan as as you know. It was very as, in vogue at that time. It was very the, in vogue, and, yeah. and and they did that the hard way. This they did that by position clone positional cloning. It's uh, yeah. this was you know it took him you know close to ten years to find the gene. Uh, it's it's difficult, um, but. Yeah. Anyway, so so this was this was fun work. Yeah, uh, I think I cut you off a little bit. You were launching into saying something else that you worked on. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So so we we worked on on other aspect of uh, cortical development and and furthering this relationship between proliferation, right, of dividing neural progenitors in the VZ and aerial identity. So the other question we asked was. Can we find, uh, using maybe birth dating methods where you use this tree-sheeted timing method and precisely measure when and where neurons are, are generated? We discovered that if you look at two adjacent areas, for example, the somatosensory cortex that has, you know, it's a sensory area, so it has a very thick layer four, right? Mm-hmm. That I'm a recipient layer four. Yeah. And if you look at, there's a sharp border in mice and many other with motor cortex, for example, that's a granular, right? So, so it doesn't have it, or it has a very thin layer four. Yeah. So we asked very simple questions is, you know, is, is this occurring? You could imagine two scenarios to, to generate this air, this aspect of aerial identity, right? This site architecture. One, the same number of cells are generated in layer four, but, you know, 80% of them die in the motor cortex. So that's why you have a thin layer four, right? Or this is set up very early in development and there's actually differences in proliferation at the time when you generate layer four and you actually actively generate much less neurons destined to layer four in the motor cortex. Mm-hmm. The, and at that time, we didn't have molecular markers on those. So, so we used this proliferation index to test this hypothesis and we essentially discovered that it, it's largely explainable by differences in proliferation. Okay. So that the progenitors in, in the, in, in the, you know, in, in the ventricular zone that generates these areas, uh, generate differences between the areas partially by controlling the time they spent generating a specific layer. That's the idea. What is the importance of getting the right cell to the right place during development in the brain? Ha. So that's a very good question. Yeah. Um, sort of broadly. I would say that I think it's, it's obviously a, a sort of a, connectomics problem, right? Yeah. You want to optimize the ability of axons to find their target by reducing the territory they have to cover to find the postsynaptic target. So that that's very obvious. So <clears throat> work from Josh Sainz and Larry Zipersky and many others have 
um, through the analysis of, of sort of molecules that that control uh, layer specification, have really nicely exemplified the fact that it's it, it, it's a much simpler problem, you know, for uh, axons to find their postsynaptic target if they if they're limited in in a specific layer, right? So mm-hmm. so layering the cell bodies yeah. uh, and matching where axons uh, end up relative to to the dendrites and the cell bodies of, of yeah. a given cell population is is just a way to reduce so you complexity. Get to the right neighborhood before you get to that's the, right to the right house. Uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, so that's the idea. You know, uh, it's much easier to find someone you want to meet if you know roughly which neighborhood it, it lives in rather than searching entire, you know, uh, Manhattan, for example. Right. Yeah. So, so, so we, we clearly with this real mutant, we didn't really look at this. What, what, what's really fascinating is that, you know, if you look at the cortex, people have used this real mutant where you have no layer information. To, to crudely look at uh, individual field, uh, individual cortex, for example, a receptive field structure. Yeah, this was a long time ago. Uh, work of uh, people like Ursula Dreger, for example, and surprisingly, they didn't find much. Right. So yeah, but that, I think that reflects more the fact that the system is plastic enough to adapt to massive differences in in cell position and and somehow find their target no matter what right mm-hmm. but but i think it's an optimization problem right certainly uh, it's it's uh many many instances now where where we have really good evidence that for example in retina where you know layering is is exquisite right that essentially yeah layer specific information is there to to simplify the, the problem of uh, synaptic specificity right? yeah that's great uh, yeah and so going on from grad school, how were you feeling about the direction of what types of things you were going to study in your postdoc and in your subsequent career positions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so um, most of what I did during my PhD was very much in line with, you know, development and, but mostly using neuroanatomy and, and, and tracing techniques and things like that. I didn't have much a- actual experience in cellular and molecular techniques. And so I, I knew that I, I wanted to stay in neuroscience because that's that became my passion, obviously. But I, I wanted to to join the lab and 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 an environment that was more conducive to learn, you know, molecular and cellular techniques. And so I, I joined the lab of Anna van Gosch, at uh, who was at uh, a starting professor at, at Johns Hopkins. In fact, I, I was among his first postdocs. So yeah. I actually had a great learning experience, you know, seeing uh, seeing Arnavon put together his lab, and yeah, and this was this was a, a, a great experience, and and um, yeah, and I had a great time uh, uh, both in his lab and 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 Hopkins in general. Uh, at that time, the department of neuroscience was, and I think to a large extent, still is a great you know neuroscience department, one of the one of the best. Um, it was created by Saul Snyder and. There were a lot of great investigators on, on our floor. We shared the floor with um, Alex Kolotkin and uh, Dave Ginty, mm-hmm. uh, who at that time were, you know, uh, cloning uh, a lot of axon guidance uh, molecules, uh, such as semaphorins, for example, yeah. and their corresponding, you know, receptors, neuropidine, plexins. And so it was a very active sort of time uh, uh, for uh, for sort of molecular discovery, right, mm-hmm. uh, in the axon guidance field. This was really a, a nascent field when I started in 97. Uh, and so I, I, I benefited tremendously from this, you know, from this combination of essentially being at the right time at the right place. And, yeah. and Anavan was very conducive, uh, to, to explore new directions. And so I, 
I think I was lucky in that I was just at the right time at the right place. But it, it was a great environment. I yeah. learned a tremendous amount of uh, new stuff. And I have wonderful memories of the departmental uh, faculty, uh, sorry, the departmental meeting at that time. Yeah. Were just, you know, uh, yeah, were very stimulating. It's just great to be at a place where you yeah. know, great science was going on. You could tell that. Yeah, they're, they're all sort of intellectually vibrant. Yeah, very vibrant, yeah. very stimulating, very challenging too. You know, people were, were really telling you in your face, you know, uh, that's good. That's, I don't think that's really interesting or mm-hmm. that's the right approach. That's not the right approach, but it's great because when you're a grad student or a postdoc, you need these type of interactions. You, you can't just rely on people nodding and saying what you're doing is great. You, you, you need people, you know, to step in and say, yeah, that, that's great, but you know, maybe you should try this or try, you know, and sure, give sure. you suggestions, constructive criticism. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hopkins was very much uh, a prime place to, to do a postdoc at that time. Do you employ some of that philosophy and now that you're running your own lab? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, what, what we do is very multidisciplinary. We combine a lot of different techniques to like many labs and, you know, to, to, to tackle a question. And so in order, and, and it's very difficult to be good at every single technique or every single concept. So, so like anybody else, I think we're heavily dependent on, on the quality of our colleagues and surrounding, right? So, you know, all the institutions I, I, I went to after that were uh, very multidisciplinary and, and even inside the lab, I'm trying to recapitulate this, uh, this attitude. I want people to be interested not only in what they're doing, but also genuinely interested in, in what other people in the lab are doing, other people in the department, go to seminars, read, you know, increase your scientific culture. I think we, we, we tend to become more and more specialized. You know, and become very, very sort of narrow in our interest or expertise. But I think science is the most fun aspect of science is to when people that do very different things start to talk, right? I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, yeah. It's obviously difficult, right? Because we, mm-hmm. we, because of this level of specialization, we all sort of end up speaking different languages, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's exactly, I think the analogy to language is you have to learn a, a new language when you talk to somebody completely outside your field. Yeah. Right? And so we all have our jargon. That's know, right. Jargon terms. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I think it's, uh, it, it, it's critical, but in, you know, in order to be able to learn, uh, this jargon or this different language, you, you have to be proactive and be exposed to this, right? And, uh, so I'm, 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 I'm trying the best I can to, to force people in the lab to, yeah, to, to get out of, uh, this, 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 this trend of being becoming very specialized and, and you know increase your scientific culture as much as you can it, it will serve you well uh, ultimately i think that sounds awesome that's what we're trying to do kind of so <laughs> <laughs> um so when you embarked on setting up your own lab and deciding what sort of uh, techniques and projects you wanted to work on what were the guiding principles for that what were your feelings on that whole process of course, that's, that's a very important step in, you know, in becoming independent, you know, yeah. identifying the question, right? Not simply be constrained by a technique that you learned or, but, but, uh, which, which of course has a, has a lot of impact in what, what type of science you can do, right? But beyond just technology, it's important to, to find an, an, an interesting and original question to tackle, right? And that's not easy. Especially when you come out of a postdoc, right? You tend to be influenced positively or negatively by what your postdoc mentor did. And so, 
you have two paths. Basically, either you continue to work on something, you, you start working during your postdoc, right? And that's one avenue, but it's tricky. You need to, to get agreement with your postdoc mentor. You obviously don't want to compete, you know, head to head. Uh, or you decide to explore something completely new. And so I, I did sort of both. I had one project that I took with me from my postdoc lab, uh, looking at a molecular mechanism that controls, um, Interneuron migration in the cortex, uh, and and we continued to to work on this for a few years. Ultimately, you know, switching, but but this was a good sort of transitional project. And then, so when I started my own group, we 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 tackled essentially two questions. We we continued to work on on basic problems of axon guidance, trying to understand how connectivity is set up between the thalamus and the cortex. So we, we got really interested in thalamocortical axon guidance and uh, we discovered that essentially axons from different parts of the thalamus seems to be guided to different cortical areas, mm-hmm. not by cortical cues, okay. but even before they reach the cortex, yeah. they, they seem to be uh, sorted to and pre-directed to different cortical yeah. territories by intermediate cues present in uh, an intermediate target yeah, called so the ventral tiencephalon, right? Yeah. So, so when, when those axons coming from the thalamus form what's referred to as the internal capsule, uh-huh. um, those axons are already pre-directed towards different cortical territories. So this was an interesting idea. Yeah. That, uh, so that they already have... know if they're going to be visual, going to visual cortex or auditory cortex or that, stuff, they already know. You exactly. Know, like, yeah. They're, they're predestined, you know, there's no frontal axons that will ever come in the vicinity of, you know, visual cortex. That's yeah. the bottom line. And so we identify some of the, both the principles, the, the cellular, uh, mechanisms and some of the molecular mechanisms that pre-pattern this topography before, uh, those thalamic axons arrive to the cortex. So this was, this was an interesting area, uh, that we worked on for, yeah, solid five, six years. And, and at the same time, I, we, we were also starting to work on specification of cell migration properties in the cortex. So we were interested in understanding what could be the signaling pathway, distinguishing radial migration, you know, of pyramidal neurons along uh, in the cortex versus this tangential migration of this uh, cortical interneurons that come from, you know, this uh, ventral tiencephalic structures, mm-hmm. EMG. Uh, and we worked on this for, for a few years also. Ultimately, one of the key turning points or, or deciding to, to, to tackle um, much more precise questions instead of axon guidance, which I felt a lot of people got interested in. And there was much more known than unknown in that, in, in that field. And I, I tend to like uh, exploring questions where there's a, that balance is, you know, favoring the unknown. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, so we started looking at, 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 um, identifying signaling pathways that could, um, specify axon versus dendritic identity. And, you know, neurons are such amazingly polarized cells that, that I always found fascinating that the same cell can have those two very, very, you know, long processes ranging from hundreds of microns to like a meter, right? How do, how do you specify this, this aspect of cell polarity? Right? Yeah. And so, so we, we stumbled upon, uh, this, uh, LKB1 kinase, uh, we, mm-hmm. we got access to, and that, that's a good advice for, for early investigators. When I started my lab at, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, I was trying to identify <coughs> a project where very little was known. But yeah. all the reagents were available. Oh, that's, uh, that's so very that, smart. You know, yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> that, that would be a, a really good advice to, uh, yeah. to. And so I got very lucky because 
because LKB1 is essentially a very fairly well-known and well-characterized tumor suppressor in the cancer yes. field. Yeah. People had made uh, both constitutive and conditional knockout. There were a lot of antibodies available, there yeah. were a lot, but zero was known of its potential function in, in the brain. In fact, you know, yeah, not, nothing was known. So, so we, we were able to move relatively fast in, in that and quickly determine if this protein, you know, if this, if this gene was playing any interesting function during neuronal polarization. And, and, and the answer was yes. Uh, we had this really cool phenotype. This kinase is a key regulator of uh, cell polarity in general, but it, mm-hmm. especially in neurons. Uh, it, it's absolutely required for uh, to allow neurons to form an axon during neural polarization, and the phenotype is incredibly striking. Yeah, um, and so yeah, so we've been able to build the story, and, and since then, we've been continuing to study what other aspect of neural phenotype is 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 controlled by LKB1 using you know combination of cell and molecular approaches, and and yeah, this kinase seems to be a master regulator of. Uh, of axon development. It controls very uh, many different steps in axon development from axon specification during neuronal polarization all the way to terminal axon branching. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems also maybe presynaptic function. So, yeah. um, so, so this has been a very interesting pathway for us to, to study. And that's so about a third of my lab is, is working on this, uh, on this project. What are mitochondria doing in neurons, especially out in dendrites and axons? And what are the differences between um, what they're doing in those locations? That's right. So, so we only have partial answers to, to those questions. So, yeah. I'm I'm gonna try to make a distinction between uh, facts and and fantasy for 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 Absolutely. this. But I'll, I'll I'll tell you what what we've obtained and and mix it up with uh, yeah things we're either working on or hypothesizing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mitochondria are these fascinating organelles. Have been studied for you know decades. It's essentially as most people would would consider the you know it's considered very often as the power plant of, of cells. It, it it's it's very efficient at generating ATP through oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, but it's clearly not the, the only way cells generate ATP. There are many other ways, but it's a very efficient way. And they, you know, they're they're um, they're called endosymbionts. Uh, basically, they they basically they're protobacteria. Very yeah. that three billion years ago decided to fuse basically with prokaryotes, and 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 those cells became eukaryotes. They're they're evolutionary one of the the oldest step that 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 you know allowed the emergence of eukaryotes. Um, they have their own DNA, and and that's why that's why yeah. they they have they kept their own DNA. Although that DNA has uh, severely simplified over evolution, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but yeah, they're, they're fascinating. It's a fascinating organelle, basically. But beyond ATP generation, they play many other functions. They play very important functions in uh, calcium buffering, as I uh, showed today. Uh, they also play incredibly important function that we're starting to get interested in, in things like uh, lipid uh, biosynthesis. It turns out that they, they contain key enzymes that participate to phospholipid biosynthesis okay. and that some other organelles are deficient in those enzymes, like ER. And so in order to get full complements of phospholipids like uh, phosphatidylcholine or phosphatidylethanolamine, you actually need active lipid exchange between those organelles because each organelle is incompetent to make, you know, some, some of them. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so, so they're very important for lipid exchange. So, so they play very, very important functions. So we just, we, we essentially got it really interested in this. Uh, if you look at a neuron and look at, uh, mitochondrial structure in dendrites versus the axon, 
it's it's pretty remarkable that the same cell basically uh, has in dendrites very tubular uh, mitochondria. They, they sort of cell filler. They feel uh, dendrites, uh, but they, they form this very complex network. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the axon, they are this tiny little uh, mitochondria, you know, that that um, that essentially are, are spaced at, at at very specific locations along the axon, but very yeah. very small and Much very fewer dispersed. Of them. Yeah. That's right, and so. So one thing that, that, that's really interesting to me is that, uh, at least in, in other cell types, in non-neuronal cells, people have shown that mitochondria can undergo this type of transitions in a cell cycle dependent manner. So when cells are in G1S transition, they, they, the mitochondria are very tubular. But when cells approach uh, M phase, they fragment basically from these very tiny little mm-hmm. mitochondria. And people think that, that usually think that that's the goal of that is to, to make, um, sort of segregation of mitochondria between the two daughter cells, uh, easier, right? Because it's probably easier to segregate equally small mitochondria rather than this very complex tubular network, right? Okay. But it's interesting that in neurons, basically, you have coexistence of these two types of very fragmented small mitochondria in the axon and these very tubular mitochondria in, in dendrites, right? So how, how do you, so this would basically suggest that in axons, uh, mitochondrial fission is dominant and that in dendrites, mitochondrial fusion is dominant, right? That, that could be one way to think about it, right? So part of the work in, in the lab currently is to try to identify what distinguishes this, uh, this balance between fission and fusion in axons being fission dominant and in dendrites being fusion dominant. Mm-hmm. So we think we identified one of the mitochondrial fission factor that, that explains why mitochondria are so small in, in axons. Uh, so, so, so that, that's, uh, that's work of Tommy Lewis in the lab. Um, and then, and then we're also very interested in, in, in functional differences, right? And so yeah. we think that we have very good evidence suggesting that uh, presynaptic mitochondria are very important for calcium uh, homeostasis, but we we have reasons to think that they're not so important for ATP generation. At least to the extent that we 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 found that if you look at at those cortical axons, only fifty percent of uh, synapses of presynaptic boutons have mitochondria. Fifty percent of them don't have yeah. mitochondria anywhere near. So our reasoning initially was that if they're only there for ATP generation, where is ATP coming from at the sites that don't have mitochondria? And that's yeah. a very simple-minded question. And and so so we, we we actually I mean we don't think that they're that important under normal regimes of uh, evoked uh, release. We don't think mitochondria are are very important for um, yeah. ATP generation. Yeah. But they're critically important for calcium uh, homeostasis. So so that's that's uh, one finding. Uh, that came out of the lab recently that that we're trying we're still trying to publish yep. uh we think that they're 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 absolutely uh their presence or absence essentially dictates presynaptic calcium homeostasis during evoked release and that and and and, and that through their ability to buffer calcium they essentially regulate neurotransmitter release properties so they just maybe just got put near that presynaptic release site just because they had a nice membrane with some calcium channels in it, and they're like, this is a good way to take care of this problem of calcium buffering. Let's put this weird organelle here, you know? Then there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's like a kind of a redundancy thing or something. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't know. Yeah. We really don't know what what instruct them to stop at specific presynaptic boutons. That's yeah. the bottom line. That's a major direction in our lab. There is evidence in the literature suggesting that even that first step is itself calcium dependent. So, so there could be some sort of a positive feedback, right? The, 
calcium triggers their immobilization at, but, but then the question is, you know, why 50% of presynaptic sites and not the 50% other? There's got to be other signals that instruct them to stop there. And so, mm-hmm. so we're embarking on, on a, on a larger study trying to, Identify what distinguishes those presynaptic boutons, right? Yeah. And, and, and try to essentially, um, identify the molecular cues that might dictate which presynaptic sites they should stop at and which, uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're not. So, so that, that's a, that's a major project in the lab right now. Could you talk about the genetic mechanisms underlying human brain evolution? Yes. So, so, so that's a question I've been interested in for, for quite a long time, but never knew really how to tackle that problem. Yeah. Of course, it's a, it's a big problem. What makes us human? And in particular, what, what makes our brain, you know, uh, human specific in a sense? And so we decided to tackle this question, uh, using a genetic approach by studying the function of human specific gene duplications. So gene duplication is a major driver of uh, evolution. It's a product essentially of meiotic recombination. When, when chromosomes recombine, portions of chromosomes can be copy and pasted, yeah. you know, somewhere else in the genome. Yeah. And if those new copies are endowed with a new function, then that might be positive selected and a new species can, can, mm-hmm. can emerge or a new phenotype in a pre-existing species. So they're mostly in the duplicate gene mostly appears in another chromosome, another. Usually yeah. the intrachromosomal uh, recombination is more frequent than okay, interchromosomal, yeah. but, but both can happen. But yeah. much more frequently, these recombinations occur in the same chromosome. Yeah. But they're not necessarily right next to each other on no, the that, genome. No, they can be very yeah. distant. They can be megabases apart. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And so about um, seven, eight years ago, uh, a few groups have identified gene duplications that are specific to the human lineage. Mm-hmm. So this is essentially... The portion of our genome that's human specific. And yeah. So the question is, what are those genes doing? So this is the work of, um, Evan Eichler at, uh, University of Washington and, uh, and Jim Sikela at University of Boulder and mm-hmm. Colorado in Boulder. Uh, several groups have, have participated to this. But the question is, you know, what are those genes doing? Yeah. There's really not much known. And so we, we were the first ones to tackle this question and, and ask about the function of one of these genes, this gene called SRGAP2. SRGAP2. Uh, uh, turned out to be a gene. We were probably the only lab in the world that was uh, studying the, the, yeah. the, this gene. It turns out to be a very important gene regulating uh, synapse maturation and both synapse maturation and synapse density mm-hmm. for both excitatory and inhibitory synapses. So that's a new story that's emerging. And essentially what, what's really interesting about the, this story is that it turns out that the so the ancestral copy of the gene that's shared among all mammals, in fact, it dates back to even invertebrates, the function of that gene seems to, of the ancestral copy, seems to be uh, to promote uh, synaptic maturation, promote the, the, the speed at which synapses mature, mm-hmm. and to limit uh, synaptic density uh, okay. for both excitatory and inhibitory synapses. The human-specific copy uh, expresses a truncated version of the protein that, that's about a, the, the, a third of the protein mm-hmm. that largely encodes for a, a dimerization motif. So, so this, mm. this truncated version is still able to bind to the full length ancestral copy, yeah. but largely inhibits its function. Mm. And so when we express this human specific gene in mouse neurons as a quick and dirty way to humanize, uh, those, those mouse neurons, what happens looks like a partial loss of function for the ancestral copy. You get about 30, 35% more synapses mm-hmm. per neuron, both excitatory and inhibitory synapses. Yeah. 
and those synapses mature much more slowly. So in, instead of having complements of mature synapses mm-hmm. and three weeks postnatal, uh, you know, in, in those uh, in those mice, we you know you need to wait uh, probably eight to nine weeks. So there's a significant delay of six to seven weeks, you know, delay in synaptic maturation. It's a very pronounced effect. So what's really interesting about this is that those this this increased synaptic density and this delayed synaptic maturation are two features that people have proposed are human specific in a sense, right? So, so people have done very careful comparative studies of uh, the number of synapses made onto, let's say, pyramidal neurons in the cortex of humans versus non-human primates versus, um, versus rodents. So this mm-hmm. is the work of, uh, people like Javier Di Felipe or Rafa Justi. And, and, and neur- human seems to be outliers. So, so there seems to be a very significant increase, you know, somewhere around 40%, uh, more synapses uh, per pyramidal neuron in humans compared to non-human primates. So, yeah. so, so that fits that, that, that just expressing this single gene that's human specific seems to participate to, is sufficient to induce that change. And then the second phenotype, right? This, uh, slowing down of, of, uh, the rate of, uh, synaptic maturation might also be compatible with human feature. We know that at, at least during brain development, everything looks slower in humans, right? Neuronal differentiation is slower. Uh, if you, you know, people have put, uh, put down, uh, human ESL derived neurons in culture now compared to mouse ESL derived neurons. Th- th- those neurons are incredibly slow at, at maturing, including synaptic maturation. There's mm-hmm. something intrinsically slow about neural yeah. differentiation and particular synaptic differentiation in human neurons, right? So, so the yeah. fact that, that implementing the expression of this gene, uh, is sufficient to slow down synaptic maturation is also, you know, might make sense in, in that context. It's almost like biology is taking its time to get it right or something. That's right. You know, that's, that's, right. Very, that's right. You know, make sure the quality of the output is, you know, as good it's, as it can be or something. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's the idea. Yeah. In fact, you know, but, those raise two interesting questions. The first one is what controls timing in biology? That's, that's a very big question. Mm. There's very limited knowledge on what controls, uh, the speed of, of neuronal differentiation, for example. What, what, what needs to be controlled in order to, to, to control that? Do you see what I mean? It, yeah. It's not even clear. Yeah. Uh, is it a gene expression? Uh, control, but then, then how do you control the timing of gene expression in this context? And there's a lot of questions in that. But the second question that, that we're very interested in is, what is the, the, the sort of the phenotypic consequence of slowing down synaptic maturation and of increasing synaptic density? Yeah. Right? We don't know. It's gotta be carefully balanced, right? Necessarily, not necessarily increasing the number of points of connections. Make you smarter or whatever you know. With yeah, yeah. So that's the first yeah. question: Does it make you smarter? Right? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of computational neuroscience that's been done in try to model in in artificial networks. If you increase the total number of um, the amount of connectivity within networks, what do you change? And there's an agreement that you change uh, the 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 computational properties of those networks, whatever that means, right? Mm-hmm. And, but but there's no experimental model for that. So we think we have an experimental model. We have a mouse model where uh, there is a 40% increase in both excitatory inhibitory uh, connectivity in the cortex, at least. 
what is the consequence on on cortical circuit function? Right? That's that's one of the key questions we're trying yeah. to to answer. And then the question of timing, right? Uh, is there an advantage, or what is the function of of slowing down uh, synaptic maturation? There we are. Our, our simple simple idea is that uh, maybe that has something to do with uh, things like critical periods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so different sensory systems are known to, to have these critical periods where you can modify circuits and, and change the properties of the circuits and through changing connectivity in the circuits. And so it's possible by that, by slowing down the rate of synaptic maturation in this context, you're, you might prolong, uh, critical, critical periods, um, the yeah. periods. Uh, when when those circuits are plastic, maybe I mean that's yeah. so we're testing that right yeah. now in animal models where we humanized um, the expression of SRGAP two C. We're collaborating with groups like uh, Takao Hanch at Harvard, mm-hmm. uh, who's really a leader in the field of yeah. studying uh, critical periods. And so we're we're going to test basically if, um, if if there's a if there's a an impact basically yeah. of, of slowing down the rate of maturation yeah. of synaptic maturation on on critical periods. Yeah. So you're you would essentially increase the exposure time of the system to invent environmental stimuli and that, allow that to to take a larger sample of that before you close your critical period for that, a given domain or something that that's one idea exactly yeah. Uh, yeah. even though you know uh, yeah so 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 those are two exciting directions you know yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. time will tell if we can uh, make sense out of what what comes out awesome so i want to move a little bit away from the science are you able to maintain any hobbies yeah um uh, Several. My kids uh, have two kids, um, eleven and and eight. Trying to spend as much time as I can with them, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's not not easy. And um, yeah, I I like to. I enjoy being in New York very much. I like to go out. I like jazz uh, a lot. I like music in general, but jazz in particular. So I, that's that's one thing I like. You know, uh, going out and listen to to, to jazz musicians. I like uh, like movies so i go out quite a lot i love food and wine yeah i'm french after all uh so i yeah not you know being in new york is, is a blessing for that it's absorbing just, the culture uh, very yeah. it, it is it is hard to beat um, but but you know i, I also think I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that um we live in the upper west side and so it's it's a great neighborhood we're close to i'm very close to work it's a very nice neighborhood, very dynamic. A lot of students, lots of faculties, yeah. lots of restaurants. But but it's not too crazy, right? You can you can maintain uh, sanity uh, mm-hmm. even though you're living in Manhattan. And then if you you know, so it's it's, it's controlled in that sense that you know it's easy to go out in Soho in the village where things are a little crazier. And, yeah. But yeah, so no, I but I I I really enjoy sport. Also, I I, I try to bike a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we live in, you know, I live in the Upper West Side. It's actually, there's a beautiful bike lane, uh, very accessible. Yeah. So it's easy to get out, you know, Manhattan that way. Play a bit of tennis. I enjoy tennis. So yeah, I try it. I read a little bit. I, yeah. You know, all around. Yeah. There's, there's no lack of, uh, of, uh, culture and, and, uh, that's good. And, and, uh, and entertainment in New mm-hmm. York. That's for sure. Yeah. Do, do you have a favorite restaurant or? Uh, do I have uh, a favorite restaurant? One that's yes, in, in fact, I, I mean, several. Uh, recently, a friend of mine took me to a place called, uh, I think it's called La Sirene, okay. the, the Siren. It's a French restaurant, uh, down sort of, uh, lower west, lower west side. Mm-hmm. Um, very nice, uh, very traditional French food. I really enjoyed it. 
But I also, I really enjoy uh, Japanese food. I love sushis. There's a great place uh, called Yasaka uh, in the sort of Upper West Side. Uh, yeah, good on and on. There are a lot yeah, of really yeah. cool places. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah, I think I think we're good. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. That was fun. Thanks yeah, a lot. Great. All right. Cool. That's great. We're getting good. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. We will be back soon with another look into the life and discoveries of today's neuroscientists. For more information about the science and scientists we talked to today, check out our website, brainpodcast.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and at Brain Podcast on Twitter. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. You don't even have to say why you like the show. Maybe leave us your favorite recipe. Anything helps, so thanks. The music on today's episode was by Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma. The first track was Love's Refrain from his most recent release, In Summer, and you're listening to Stained Glass Body from the 2010 album, Love is a Stream. Go check out his music. It's all fantastic and I want to thank him for letting us use it on today's episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.